Good morning. It is good to be with you. Uh, my name is Tim Burden, uh, for those of you who don't know me. Um, but I am honored to uh, look at God's Word together with you. If you would turn in your Bibles, if you have one with you, we're going to look at Psalm chapter 37. Psalm 37, just the first 11 verses. Um, Psalms, if you have a, a Bible you could borrow, smack dab in the middle and look for chapter 37. If you picture uh, in your head a hill, just a hillside, and over that hill is just this amazing, beautiful outlook. If you've been hiking in the mountains, you you see this all the time. Um, Some sermons are preached from the top of that hill, and kind of, not in a prideful way, but saying, you know, guys, I just want you to see this amazing vista that the Lord has shown me, and and, and you can do it, you can get up here, and we can do this. Other sermons come from more in the valley and kind of saying, here are some things that the Lord is teaching me, and I trust him that these things, this vista, this view is on the other side of this hill, even though maybe we can't quite see it yet. Um, This sermon is a little bit more of the latter. Um, These are some things that the Lord has been trying to teach me, I think, and I'm very slow to learn. Um, but it's uh, something that I think is important. I found to be important in my own life, and I think is important in yours as well. I'll tell you the big idea, what we're hoping to do by God's grace, and then we'll read. Um, basically, the, the whole message can be distilled to this. Sitting still with God is hard, but he meets us there with grace and joy. Let me read for Psalm 37. Starting in verse 1. This is a psalm of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall soon shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully for his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. This is God's word. Uh, Pray with me. Lord, we pray that you would open our ears and soften our hearts to hear what you, by your spirit, have to teach us and We pray and look forward to you doing the work that only you can do in our hearts and lives. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So sitting still, sitting still with God. Our key verse is really going to be the first half of that verse 7. And that's really kind of our anchor point in this passage. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Summarized again, like I said, sitting still with God is hard. But he meets us there. He meets us with grace and with joy. So we're going to work through that basic summary, kind of phrase by phrase. But first of all, just sitting still 
with God. What is that? What is David talking about? Well, here's the situation. This is not news to you. The world is a mess. The world is a mess. Government corruption and self-serving politicians, racial injustice and sex trafficking are on the rise globally. Uh, TV talking heads who seem to be paid not to understand other points of view. Um, The world is a mess. But it's not just out there, is it? Inside, closer to home, our own relationships are a mess. Friends leave us and betray us. We use other people to make ourselves feel superior. So it's not just the world, it's us, right? We are a mess. In this psalm, David especially focuses on a really specific kind of mess in the world. The wicked seem to get, a, get away with their wickedness. And what's more, they seem to be prospering. They seem to be doing really great. How could anyone say that there's justice in God's world, he says. He's almost left scratching his head. And so David wants us to ask us, have you been watching the news lately? Do you know what's going on? This is a theme, this theme of, Lord, everything seems upside down. The, the wicked are prospering. It's those who are following you, those who are, who are poor, those who have no power, who are being oppressed and downtrodden. That's a theme that you see over and over again, um, not just in David's Psalms, but his son, no doubt, learned this from him. His son Solomon would go on to write many of the pro- what we have in the book of Proverbs and in the book of Ecclesiastes, the same theme. Why do the powerful take advantage of the weak and seem to get away with it? But David sees this mess inside of himself too because he's drawn to all the wrong responses. When he sees this injustice, the, the, this world is not the way it's supposed to be, he's drawn to respond in, well, shall we say, less than helpful ways. He sees the wicked getting away with maybe sexual infidelity And he has to admit that he's at least a little bit envious. He sees people out to assassinate his character, and for David, even out to assassinate his body. And he gets filled with rage. He sees the wicked getting rich by extorting the poor with, just for example, payday payday loans uh, in exchange for crushing high-interest debt that they could never get out from under. And so David gets impatient with God. He says, He says, Lord, aren't you going to do something? How long are you going to wait? We we need you now. See, what what he sees them doing is wrong. And he's made the correct assessment. But like him, we're, we're tempted to react in less than godly ways. So what can we do? Well, first, the Bible has a lot to say about uh, actually godly responses to sin and, and injustice in the world. Um, and really, right off the bat, I can give you really quickly a couple of things. First, we should repent. First, we're called to look for the plank in our own eye before we go pointing out specks in others' eyes, right? That's something that Jesus has taught us. Uh, and then, yes, we need to work our tails off, sharing the gospel with our neighbors and, and putting the, the outworking of the gospel into practice, fighting for justice and peace, what the prophet Micah called doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with our God. That's, that's another thing that we can do in response. But there's a step in between those two things that's missing. 
between, David has to remind himself of it and he reminds us of it. In between repentance and then taking action, God calls us to sit patiently with him and wait, knowing that he's in control, knowing that he will act in his perfect timing, even if that means waiting until Jesus' return when all wrongs will finally be made right. But God calls us to calm our anxious hearts. He invites us to come to him, to still our restless feet and our fidgeting fingers, and he asks us to fix our fearful, darting eyes on him. So really, what we're talking about here, and what David is talking about, is prayer. He's talking about prayer, about seeking God's face. But it's really about a very specific kind of prayer. We're talking about waiting prayer, about meditative prayer, about still and silent and trusting prayer. This is what we mean by um, getting away from the relentless noise and distractions that we live with day to day to find time to be alone with God. If you think about that phrase, I'm sure you've heard that before. If you've grown up in the church being alone with God, it sounds like a contradiction, right? Solitude with God. Um, But for the Christian, there's really no other kind of solitude, right? Where can I go to flee from your presence, another psalm says. So verse 7 here, um, it's, it's certainly not the only time that David calls his own heart and calls our heart to be still before God. It's a theme that runs throughout the Psalms. Psalm 62, verse 1. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Uh, Psalm 131, verse 2, uh, a psalm that David mentioned a couple weeks ago is one of his favorites. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. See, he's no longer grasping and clutching and desperately whining, gimme, gimme, gimme. Now, there may be times of dire desperation where that kind of prayer is appropriate, right? God doesn't look down on us for for those kinds of prayers. In fact, sometimes that's the very best prayer you can pray. You could just simply say, help, Lord, help me. We need that sometimes. We know for certain that that's okay because Jesus himself prayed like that sometimes. All right, you remember Jesus right before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he cries out desperately, Father, if it be your will, let this cup of wrath, the, the wrath that we deserve for our sin that was about to be poured out on him in our place. He says, if it's your will, somehow let's do it different. Let this cup of wrath pass from me. Nevertheless, not, your, not my will, but yours be done. So that kind of praying has its place. But I think the standard practice for Jesus that we see in the Gospels, and therefore the model for the standard practice of of type of praying that needs to be a regular part of our daily lives, is, is this kind of still, quiet praying and trusting him. Jesus himself, after a full day's work of teaching and healing, his practice was, was to get away from the crowds, right? From his disciples, from his family, to get away to be alone with the Father in prayer. Um, sometimes that looked like really long stretches. So uh, um, at the beginning of his ministry, he spent 40 days in fasting 
and prayer and being tested in the wilderness. More often, it was during the night for Jesus, since that was presumably the only time he can get away by himself. And we see that all throughout the Gospels, right? Matthew chapter 14, um, it says, And after Jesus had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Mark chapter 1, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. Luke chapter 5, But he, Jesus, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So Jesus himself models really the healthy rhythms of work and then rest, of community and then solitude. But solitude is never completely alone as a believer. It's solitude with God, intentionally with the Father. Sitting still with God is what he's calling us to. But sitting still is hard. It's really hard. I think there are two main reasons why this is the case. Um, The first reason why I think just sitting still before the Lord is hard is our sin, right? Like David, uh, before we get to the right responses to the situation we see in the world around us and how we're being mistreated, before we get to that, we're tempted to fall into all kinds of sinful, ungodly responses. And he lists them here. You can go through. I'm not going to point them all out. But he talks about envy. He talks about unrighteous or self-centered anger. He talks about impatience. He talks about anxiety and worry and fear. These are all mentioned or implied in these 11 verses here. And each one of these things in their own way make it hard, uh, if not actually impossible, to sit still with God and to trust him, to trust his wisdom, his sovereignty, his control. So that's the first one. That may be more obvious. It's hard to sit still because we're sinful. But there's something else that I think makes it really hard to be still before the Lord and wait patiently with him. And that's just basic distractions. May not necessarily be, be sinful, but distractions, just run-of-the-mill fear of boredom. Sitting still in silence makes us uneasy, right? I think it's okay that we admit that. We're not used to it. Um, now, like a lot of things, we can get better at it with practice. Um, and that's, in fact, one of the reasons we do what we just did recently. We have a moment of silence for silent confession. We're very intentional about having that moment of silence, not just because we need to confess our sin, and, and that's, that's part of our, our time and worship together, but it's, it's a training ground for us, right? We need to be trained in doing this thing that we're not very good at doing. We have to train our minds and bodies to do this, to sit still before God, to turn inward in self-examination, to be intentional about our thoughts and our prayers. Well, if it makes you feel any better, this has always been hard. It's not just us in the modern era. Around 350 years ago, um, the, the philosopher and, and inventor and uh, mathematician, Blaise Pascal, um, he, he put it this way famously. I have often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness, what would you think he would put there, which is interesting, how would you finish that sentence? The sole cause of mankind's unhappiness, this is how he finishes it, 
is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. You could Google that. That's actually probably one of his most famous of his, it's the Ponces, was his, um, his sayings, which were collected uh, after his death. Um, and he has a really brilliant reason for saying that, um, which I don't have time to get into. But there you go. You can, that's what Google's for. Um, Blaise Pascal. People have always been uncomfortable sitting alone with their thoughts. Pascal goes on, like I said, to just give this kind of brilliant explanation of why he thinks that is, of why people seem to be so unhappy and so uncomfortable with themselves. But this was actually recently confirmed uh, in an experiment. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, it was mostly researchers at University of Virginia, up near where my brother lives, actually. Um, but these researchers actually brought people together in a lab. And they told them that they were going to ask them to sit alone in an empty room without any clocks or anything for about 10 to 20 minutes. And they took everything away from them. They took their watches. They took their phones. They took uh, any, any other distracting devices. And so just sit in a chair. The only rules were um, sit quietly. Uh, don't fall asleep. You can't get up out of your chair and you can't fall asleep. Um, but they were told, also shown, they were shown this button nearby where if they press the button, they would get an electric shock. Um, they had them do it once to test it, and they said that was pretty unpleasant, wasn't it? And all the people said, yes, that was very unpleasant. And they said, would you pay money to not be shocked like that again? And they said, yes. I would. The vast majority of them said, I would be willing to pay money to not be shocked like that again. So they said, okay, here you go. You're alone in a room. Uh, in about 10 to 20 minutes, we'll come and get you, but just entertain yourself with your own thoughts. Um, and by the way, if you feel like it, the shock button is there. This is, this is a true, uh, an actual study. Um, so what they weren't really expecting uh, to happen w- was this. Um, this is what happened. By the end of the study, uh, they found that 70% of the men and 25% of the women chose to shock themselves during only 12 minutes. It was a 12-minute increment instead of just sitting there and entertaining themselves with their own thoughts. Men were a lot worse at this than women. 70% of men and 25% of women. Um, and they thought, well, okay, well, maybe, you know, this is a research, this is a school, and so they had mostly students, you know, undergrad, grad, age. And so they said, well, maybe this, there's a generational thing. They did the experiment again with others, and it was pretty much the same. Uh, different, different age ranges. Even when they had people do the experiment at home, um, where they uh, just couldn't, you know, they just had to report themselves what they did. Um, only, like half of them admitted to, to saying that they sneaked to look at their phone or they called up a friend or were texting someone. They couldn't do it. Sitting still with our thoughts, let alone sitting still in prayer, is hard work. Um, and now this is, this is an aside. Um, I think we've trained ourselves lately to be a lot worse at this um, than maybe we used to be. Now I'm going into a full-on curmudgeon, get-off-my-lawn type of uh, mode here. Um, This is something, I mean, again, I'm I'm preaching to myself here. But I've been doing a lot of reading about this lately, so I'm feeling really convicted. Uh, Our phones are making us afraid of downtime. We've bought into this promise that we never need to have a moment of boredom again. Um, And I think that has really important ramifications for our ability to even pray. 
Um, you know, we carry around this, this magic wand in our pocket, right? It's this little slick tile. Um, they make them slippery, so you drop it easily and it cracks and you have to buy a new screen. But because of it, it trains us to constantly reach for it, right? We're trained by it. Um, and so we're never really, our fingers are always fidgeting and reaching for it. Um, it doesn't really ever want to leave you alone to daydream uh, or to wonder or to notice other people or places or the nature around you. Um, and research actually bears this out. It makes us much worse at talking on a deeper level and listening to one another well. Um, even when the phone is, uh, if you're having a conversation with someone, they have a study for this too. Um, if, you, if there is a phone on the table, even if it's upside down and turned off, the mere presence of a phone makes the conversation, um, it keeps the conversation on a lighter, shallower level. Um, now, I'm not saying don't use a smartphone, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. Um, there are lots of amazing benefits uh, to it. Uh, I'd strongly encourage you, though, to think carefully about how to maybe take back the reins um, impose limits. I'm not talking just about imposing limits on kids, but you'll read plenty. You can find plenty of articles on your own telling you why that's important um, to set limits for kids, but also for ourselves. All right, that's the end of my rant. Um, and none of this is meant to shame any of us. Okay, none of us is meant to shame anyone for our, approach, our approaches to parenting or for our own use of of technology. This is something we're all figuring out together, right? But sitting still with God, waiting and trusting in him to work, is just really, really hard. It's hard. And so David's here to tell us, though, he says, he says, trust me, you need this. You need to be still and quiet before God. And so in this psalm, it seems like David's really in the middle of learning this lesson himself. And so he's letting us listen in on this sermon that he preaches to his own heart. So as we sit in, we hear him preaching to us, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Sitting still with God is hard, but he meets us there. And he meets us there with grace and with joy. A couple of practical uh, suggestions, things that I'm still learning and working hard to, to put into place more consistently um, if you'd like, uh, there are tons of other resources out there. Um, if, you're, if you would like to do this more, um, if this is something you need to grow in, um, a book that many of us read together called Habits of Grace by David Mathis is an excellent place to start. He has a few very short chapters uh, talk specifically about these kinds of things of, of silence and solitude before the Lord. Real quick suggestions. It's, it's really helpful. A lot of people have found it's helpful to, to pick up particular spot in your home that's dedicated to being still before God in prayer on a regular daily basis. Pick a spot, make that the spot you go to. Um, I know that some folks who um, can't get away from others uh, when they're at work, and so a couple of times a week they'll eat lunch in their car with the radio turned off and the phone put in the glove box <laughs> so they're not tempted to glance at it. Um, but start small. Build from there. Um, if you've never done it, 10 minutes in silent prayer feels like an eternity. Um, but like other things, you get better at it with practice. Um, and don't go into prayer empty-handed. 
Um, if you want to hear from God, don't just sit and listen to your own thoughts. That's your own thoughts that you're listening to. We speak to God in prayer, but where he speaks to us is primarily, chiefly, authoritatively in his word, right? So take a Bible with you. Um, and maybe also take a pen and paper or a journal. Um, very often people have found that writing out your thoughts, writing out your prayers, just writing out what you're thinking, what you're learning from God's word, has a really amazing ability to clarify in your mind um, what's actually going on. Uh, also, just plan ahead. Maybe plan ahead to schedule some time, uh, maybe a day-long retreat away, or maybe even longer if you can swing it every once in a while. Go camping. It doesn't have to cost much. Go visit a friend somewhere else, someone who will know and respect your, your desire to have some time alone with the Lord. Um, all of this, it might sound like this is an introvert who, who finally found some excuse for getting away and being by himself, away from other people, and I'm telling everybody else that they need to be more like me. I am an introvert, but this is really hard for me. And I hate to break it to you, but I think the Bible wants extroverts to do this too. <laughs> um, and, and I think it really is good uh, for all of us, and it's going to look different for every person. Everyone's situation is different too. I mean, if you're a parent of small kids, if you're, if you're caring for an aging loved one, um, if your job or financial situation just makes it really hard to get away, um, don't you think the Lord understands that? So I want to tell you the Lord is gracious. He understands. You know, you may be in a season where all you can carve out for yourself is a few minutes, like as soon as the baby finally falls asleep, before you yourself just completely crash and embed yourself. And maybe you're exhausted and you keep falling asleep when you're trying to pray. And maybe that makes you feel kind of bad. But don't. Don't. Um, I love what one pastor, uh, Scott Sauls, put it this way. He says, if you're a parent, just think about how you feel when your young child falls asleep in your arms. You think maybe that's how your father feels? So there, don't you feel better? <laughs> um, in fact, we know that he doesn't, the Lord doesn't mind this at all. Jesus himself invites us to come away with him, to get, uh, to get the physical and the spiritual rest that we need. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus himself said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon me, take my yoke upon you, and, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He meets us there, and he meets us in grace and with joy. He meets us with grace. See, um, see, getting away with Jesus, learning to sit still with the Lord, it has this amazing ability of kind of building up our trust in him. Now, why would that be? It's because in those moments, you're not doing anything, right? We're living out what we claim to believe, what we proclaim with our mouths. We're actually living out that the Lord is ultimately in control, not me. We're, we're leaning into the reality that this is my father's world. He's in control. It doesn't all fall on my back. Um, we're also leaning into the reality of how God has actually just made us 
as creatures made in his image. We are finite. Yes, we're made for work. But just like Jesus had the perfect balance of, of rhythms of work and then rest, of, of community, being with others, and then solitude with the Lord. He's made us for those same rhythms of work and then rest. When we rest, we acknowledge that God will keep the world turning, even while we kick back for some conversation with him. We honor our maker by acknowledging our creaturely limits and by trusting that he's the one who never sleeps. He's the one who never grows weary in taking care of us and the world. And so it's in this stillness that the Lord meets us and grows us in really unique ways. Um, if you look back, actually through the first, those, those 11 verses in chapter Psalm 37, I think that you can actually find, without having to get too creative, you can find every one of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit. You've grown up in church, maybe you've heard the fruit of the Spirit, right? Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, and so instead of giving in to, to envy and impatience and self-centered anger, in stillness before the Lord, he grows us in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Honestly, I'm not sure that, that you could really grow in the vast majority of those without having some solitude and stillness with God. And all this is pure grace, right? It's all of pure grace, even when we have a hard time focusing on the Lord, Jesus never takes his eyes off of us. Even when we keep failing to make time and space to be with him in prayer, Jesus is right now in this very moment praying, interceding for you before the throne of our Heavenly Father. It's by grace that we've been saved and brought into his family in the first place. Right? It's not of works, because we could never do enough to, to bring ourselves all the way home to a holy and perfectly righteous God. It's all by grace alone. But it's ultimately also for our joy, for our happiness, for our delight in him. Look at verse 4, and, and we're almost done. David writes, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of of your heart. One of the ways that the Lord wants to grow us is to actually expand our capacity for joy. Our hearts our hearts are just naturally shriveled up in their capacity for deep happiness. And this comes mainly from our sin, as we've talked about. Sin is, is selfishness. The great uh, church father, St. Augustine, famously says, sin is basically being curved in on ourself rather than outward toward God and, uh, and loving God and then through God loving others. It's being curved in on ourself more and more. Um, and and that, that shrinks, it, it shrinks up our capacity for even joy and the delight that we were made for. Um, and so sin is part of it, and as we talked about also, I think just maybe not necessarily sinful, but less than wise uses of distractions and just shallow amusements. These things shrink our capacity for a deeper sense of happiness and joy and delight. But sitting still with God is the classroom that we need. It's the training ground 
that we need. It's the deep conversation with God where he expands our heart's capacity for joy and then fills us to overflowing with himself. Many of you have probably heard a famous kind of image from from the writer C.S. Lewis, Um, but he put it this way. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And I love this, this image. He said, it's like we're an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what's, what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And he goes on to say, we are far too easily pleased. David tells us, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know those two key words there, delight and desire. Delight and desire. Those two words are really basically synonyms here. If you look carefully at that sentence there, delight and desire, we desire the things that that give us joy and delight, right? Or conversely, we enjoy, we take delight in that which we most deeply desire. Now, this is really good news because if more and more the deepest desire of your heart, the deepest desire of your heart is the Lord, then he promises here to give us more and more of himself. So we could paraphrase verse 4 by actually saying this way, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you himself. He will give you himself. Sitting still with God is hard, but he meets us there with grace and joy because he just keeps giving us more and more of himself. Let's pray. Lord, it is hard to sit still. Um, Maybe that comes some from temperament. It certainly comes a lot from sin in my own heart. Um, But Lord, we do thank you for your grace um, to meet us there, to be patient with us. We pray that you would help us more and more, even this week, to learn in a deeper way what it means to, to practice sitting quietly before you. Lord, thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.